Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today in our critics series, we are going to be talking to friend of the show Armand White and Matt Zoller-Seitz, who has also been on the show before, and a new critic, Godfrey Cheshire. They three were the critics of the New York Press, one of the most spectacular alt-weeklies of the 90s, and a show of what American criticism within living memory could boast. I'm pleased to have them on the show. We recorded an interview because they three now have a book out. It's out today. You can just go on Amazon and buy The Press Gang. You will find in this volume an idiosyncratic and fascinating history of cinema from 1991 to 2011 through the perspectives of these three critics who overlapped at the New York Press in various combinations and who are there to investigate cinema to thrill to the wonderful new things, to be surprised at new names as much as at the new works by the established masters, and all in all to consider what is it that film culture consists in, what does it have to offer to us, what does it demand of us, how can we best appreciate it. And so this is a volume that will be a wonderful addition to any cinephile and also to anyone who wants to learn about America and cinema in the 90s and afterwards. You can pick up a couple of Spielberg movies and read these essays by Matt and Armand and Godfrey Cheshire and see what new insights they can offer you and how you could learn to look in a completely new way at America's foremost director. And you can look at the writing on Terence Malik or on Robert Altman, Martin Scorsese, or Quentin Tarantino for that matter. Since the digital age retrieves all these memories of the past and makes it possible for us to see all these movies all over again, it also makes it possible for us to read the critics, to figure out what was obvious at the time, what was farsighted, what was not borne out by events, and how the prospects of cinema changed through the years. And you will also see in this conversation, as much as in the volume, what it means to be a film critic, what a strange human being that has an entire memory database of films and their associations and their mutual influences over the decades. The critic is a kind of preserver of cinema. He is idiosyncratic. He looks at things from his own perspective and he will inevitably be attuned to some phenomena and not to all phenomena. But at the same time, you see in him, therefore, that like anyone else in the audience, he reacts in a personal way to an artistic statement of the times. The film critic is the best example of the theory that film is a form of education, that it's an art. And at the same time, the film critic is the audience not just of this particular movie, but of cinema in general, of hundreds and indeed thousands of movies made over a century. In our times, Martin Scorsese is a film critic, and so is Jean-Luc Godard, and so is of course also Quentin Tarantino. The distances between artists and critics and audiences were never as small as in the 90s. The 90s were therefore a privileged moment for reflection on cinema, and this volume is great evidence of what criticism has to offer us. But this is a long enough introduction, and it's certainly too solemn for what is a very freewheeling interview, and therefore I'll stop and just cut to Matt Armand and Godfrey Cheshire. Hello, gentlemen. Thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Let us talk about your book, The Press Gang, about... New York, the NY Press, and film criticism in the 90s. 
Okay. Okay. Uh, since I was Godfrey, you yeah, I was. I was going to say you were there. I was there first. Yeah. One thing about this book that readers might want to know is that it does include the writings of the three of us spanning a twenty-year period, but it goes chronologically. So it's, I think, a good way to sort of go through the decade of the 90s and then beyond and watch what's happening in film history, not just hearing our opinions. I mean, it's definitely through our opinions, but you can sort of trace the history of that period, I think, in a very interesting way. I think another thing is that all three of us came from outside of New York originally. I'm from North Carolina. Matt's from Texas. Armin came from Detroit. And we all came into New York at different times. Armin was there before I arrived. I arrived in 91 and was very lucky to find New York Press as a place to write at that time. They didn't have a film critic. I was familiar with the paper. I thought it was an interesting publication. So I, and so I wrote there for about three or four years before Matt came in. And then Matt and I were there together for about three years. And this is reflected in the way the book is laid out. And then Armin came in and we were all together there for about three years at the end of the uh, 90s. So that's sort of the way the book approaches all of this. But I do think that this is a very interesting period. From my perspective, there were three things that were perhaps most notable. One is that it was the maturity of some of what was called the film generation from the 60s and 70s. And artists like Scorsese and Altman, Oliver Stone and Terrence Malick, etc. We saw, to me, some real masterpieces coming from those directors during that time. Time. The second thing is that it was the rise of the Sundance generation of American independent filmmakers. We got a lot of hype during that decade. I think more hype than was merited, but it was a significant phenomenon in what people were paying attention to and thinking about and looking about in terms of cinema. And then the third thing were the rise of certain international cinemas, including two that really involved me, namely China and Iran. And I went to both of those places in addition to writing about the films to try to understand the film cultures better. So that's what I'll, I'll say again. I think you're right, Mr. Cheshire. It's a strange change of generations. The first generation that grew up on the movies and even on TV and nevertheless produced acknowledged masters and this remarkable decade that is not only referenced but treated again and again in the book, the 70s. All of you take the time now and then to write about Scorsese or about Altman in the 70s or other masters that first made their mark then. And at the same time, in the 90s, you see all these new directors that we might call VCR kids as opposed to the TV kids. This strange clash of generations suggests that cinema itself is now so self-conscious. Criticism is therefore also incredibly self-conscious. You look at a movie and you see film history. Movie makers want you to look at their shots and to remember past masters, to think about their influences, about their homages, about their theft or inspiration or how you will. And therefore, the purpose of the movies itself seems to be lost. It's not clear. Are you looking to go to the movies to see a story? Or is movie making some other kind of thing? And as this strange level of sophistication becomes widely available, again, the blockbuster era, the VCR era, it's at the same time the case that we can't but complain of increasingly low or debased forms of entertainment in cinema. It's a strange decade of contradictions. Well, when I came into uh, New York Press at the late 90s, this is after I had spent over a decade at the City Sun, which was a Black-owned newspaper published out of Brooklyn, New York. So by the time I got to New York Press, I was already, I guess you could say, operating in as part of alternative 
journalism, alternative media. And coming to New York Press was a way of continuing that. Operating in alternative media, me, uh, it means that you're bringing a different perspective than uh, mainstream media was offering. And so I think one of the blessings of being at New York Press, that New York Press was an alternative media and New York Press was interested in a different type of criticism. We, Godfrey, Matt, and I were allowed to practice long-form criticism. Criticism that wasn't simply uh, consumer advice, but criticism that was uh, an intellectual pursuit, also a pursuit of passion. We could be serious film critics and not be ashamed of that. And perhaps the greatest blessing of all is to discover that there was an audience for it, that there were readers who wanted to go more deeply into film and into criticism, and they welcomed the long-form expression of what the three of us had to say, and they welcomed us talking about cinema, not just about movies. That was great. That was great. In a way, it was a perfect and necessary response to the changes that had happened, I'll say, in American film culture, especially during that 90s period, uh, which, as Godfrey said, was the Sundance era, uh, the Sundance era where filmmakers were allowed, were allowed themselves to take themselves more seriously and to approach either social topics or personal topics or approach the cinema itself in an unashamed way. And they, too, had an audience for that in the 90s. And lo and behold, there the three of us were there ready to respond to them and to respond to them as critics, not simply as promoters. And I think that's a simple way of saying what criticism at the New York Press was. I think most mainstream criticism is just an arm of publicity, but that's not what we did at New York Press. Yeah, I think you're right. That's how I think of the highs and lows of the 90s as a younger man looking back through readings and through viewings that on the one hand, the press and much of TV-driven appreciation of the movies is in fact reduced to what we now call fanboys and certainly to PR, its celebrity worship of increasingly debased kinds. And at the same time, in parallel, or at least at the fringes, you see this other possibility of a certain collegiality between directors and critics, and at the same time, a kind of rivalry, since critics and directors both advance visions of cinema, of the heritage of the movies and of the possibilities of the movies. And of course, readers are all invited to be part of this dialogue of the friendship, of the rivalries, of the competitions and cooperation that you see when serious people who add to love of cinema and education in film history are allowed to express themselves. And therefore, it's an invitation for the audience to become more loving and more sophisticated at the same time. And I think, as you say, Armand, this is a necessary counterpoison to adulation, that hype that TV made possible, that was capable not only of making a big fuss about nothing, about movies that were worthless or directors that were worthless, but also to corrupt in some strange way even talented directors or writers or spread some kind of miasma around very good movies to hype. It's a strange phenomenon, but there was a lot of that in the 90s. Well, I think looking back on it, I didn't realize how good we had it. I entered the newspaper business in the early 90s 
which turned out to be the last decade when newspapers were really a dominant cultural force. I think when 9-11 happened, things shifted decisively over to television. And then towards the end of the decade, the uh, handheld mobile devices came in, and then everything became content. It was kind of incredible how that meteor wiped out all the dinosaurs. And when I entered the business, you know, it was still possible to make a living if you got on staff somewhere. Even a small paper, you get a decent uh, paycheck. And I was writing for the Newark Star-Ledger as a pop culture critic, just writing about everything, and eventually focused on television. And I saw this ad in the New York press that they were seeking a film critic. And I thought, well, I just moved from Texas, and I'd had a lot of success in my career there, and why not try my luck? And it turns out Godfrey pulled my clips out of the slush pile and called me up and said, do you want to go to lunch? And I met him for lunch at this little French cafe, bistro. But I'll, I'll never forget, you know, Godfrey and I were both smokers at the time, and we were sitting in a little corner window table, just chain-smoking furiously and talking about movies. And it wasn't a job interview. I already had the job. But it was nice to know that Godfrey respected my work. Even when I was really young, I was like 25 or 26 years old, but he treated me like a peer. Uh, and I looked up to Godfrey because I'd been reading him. Back in Texas, we had pro bono subscriptions with all the other news weeklies around the country. So there was this huge wall of all the different papers. And I used to read Armand in the City Sun. You know, so these guys were legendary to me. So I felt like, you know, it was Jimmy Cagney and Pat O'Brien, and I was one of the Bowery boys. And somehow I got to tag along with them, and it was great. But definitely the film culture then. I think what's distinctive about the 90s, and a lot of the younger generation kind of sneers when they hear this, because I think they necessarily have to feel defensive of what they don't have and can't have. But I believe now, looking back on it, that that was the last period when movies were truly distinct from every other art form. They had their own culture, they had their own language. And the extra media creep was already starting to happen. Like, some television shows were starting to feel more like movies movies were starting to feel like television shows and video games were borrowing language from movies and television shows and on and on. But there was still this distinct thing called cinema, or as Godfrey likes to put it, the movies. And there was a ton going on, a ton going on. I mean, there were still big Hollywood mainstream films. There was this whole middle ground occupied by the likes of Miramax, Fine Line, New Line, Dimension, Artisan. I mean, there were all of these little companies. Uh, Hemdale even existed for a while. They finally went bankrupt. And then Coralco and Golan and Globus, and I mentioned Dimension on the exploitation side. And then there was incredible amounts of independent cinema that were available not just in New York, but in places like Dallas, where we had several dedicated art house screens that I used to go to all the time. And, uh, you know, obviously with COVID, like, who knows what anything is going to look like when it's all over. But even prior to that, I felt like we were kind of witnessing the death rattle of movies as we had once known it. Which isn't saying that cinematic language is going to go away. It's a language. I think it's always going to be with us. But the movies are kind of over. Yeah, the 90s is the last time where you can know for sure what the movies are because there are still both movies that are very big and movies made by artists that everybody can respect and that somehow unify cinema. Even when people fight over their legacy or the meaning of their important movies, that's still fighting over a common ground. And that, after the 90s, disappears. I think you're right, Matt. It's both on the print side, what's going to happen to the newspapers, the bubble of the 90s bursts and it's over. And it happens in cinema where even there, after the 90s, the studios make fewer and fewer movies, the mini-majors, there's fewer of them. And so the 90s, at least in retrospect, is an obvious bubble and in some ways a high point. 
and therefore very evocative of cinema and the possibilities of film culture. So I think maybe there's more that we can speak about that period precisely because of how different it is to 2020. I don't want to sound too much like a curmudgeon because I do believe that there are very interesting things happening in new media and I've written about them. You know, I believe that there is something interesting still happening in terms of telling stories and pictures. But I don't think it's accurate to say that the movies will never die and will always have movies and so on. I think now what we're looking at is something more like a division between short-form storytelling and long-form. The long-form is series of one kind or another and the short-form is self-contained you know, 90 minutes to three hours long. And there's plenty of interesting examples of that, you know, whether it's, you know, The Five Bloods or The Irishman or Parasite or Marriage Story or, you know, you can make a list of like 20 or 30 movies that got a lot of ink last year. Like, there's definitely still things to talk about, but they've been all subsumed underneath this umbrella called content, and I think we have to reckon with that. Definitely. Since you're first, Mr. Cheshire, at NY Press, Tell me, how do you think about this matter that, as a film critic, the importance of the films transpires in everything you write? Cinema itself gives you something to talk about that is worth talking about, that will get an audience and also a human reaction. You have to use your judgment, you have to use your taste, and you have to offer an audience something. So there's obviously an importance to cinema that I think Matt's right. I don't really feel anymore, or certainly not as a cultural force. Yeah, you know, I, I remember uh, something that happened shortly after I moved to New York and started writing for New York Press was I was just standing in line at some theater. It could have been Film Forum or some other downtown theater for a Friday night show. And I just looked around at the people that were standing in line around me and I thought, this is an audience of smart, educated, informed people who are really interested in cinema. And I felt sort of very fortunate to have that audience, which I would consider the downtown or the Manhattan audience, maybe the best in the country, to be able to address those people and to address them not as idiots or consumers or anything like that, but as people who had the same level of interest that I did. And I think that that was rewarded over and over. I, I think Armin and Matt would agree with this too, is that we would get reactions to what we wrote that showed that people were really paying attention and really saw it as important and adding something to their lives and being an important part of the film culture that we were all inhabiting then. Because, you know, the film culture involved a lot of things besides just individual films and theaters. It involved, you know, the discussions that went on around them and the various institutions and such. And I feel like in New York, that hit a kind of a high point then that had a lot to do with the way that there was so much criticism out there with the films that were coming out. I mean, Matt is right. It was sort of the last decade of print journalism in a way. And print went away very, very rapidly after this. And a lot of what we did and the attention we Got and the reactions we got and the engagement came from these papers being out there on the stands every week. And you walk into a coffee shop and half the people in the coffee shop are reading your review or whatever. So there was that engagement that I think is very real and that it doesn't exist anything like that uh, anymore. Yeah, and I think with it somehow a chance that education has gone. Armand, that's the reason I follow you. I've always got this sense reading you and reading your pieces in NY Press now for the new book. I get this sense even more so how concerned you are with the necessary education for cinema, how to help audiences steer their way to becoming able to judge for themselves, not to be suckered and not to let greatness pass either, to tell the difference between polished mediocrity and greatness and therefore to love movies. Okay, well, you know, uh, 
it is true that the 90s was a period, a high point of engagement with STEM culture by an educated public. But there's something ironic about that, too. Or at least I always felt it was ironic that uh, these very smart people in some ways were maybe a little too willing to accept what was being sold to them. And uh, by being willing to buy into whatever the new hype was, they often didn't appreciate cinema enough. And so I felt fortunate to be able to try to point out to our readers that this is a great art form. And it's more than just entertaining, but it's carrying everything that is important about our cultural heritage and that people should respond to movies in a serious manner, which doesn't mean not having fun at the movies, but just taking them seriously. The irony there is that this was also a high point of the independent film movement. And still, despite that, at the same time, you had audiences who uh, weren't always as attentive to serious ideas and serious efforts as they could be. So we, the three of us, had a good opportunity to always point out to our readers, I'm going to say it, what good serious cinema was. That was part of our, of our good fortune in being able to write long-form criticism. We didn't simply say, go have fun. I think all of our articles would always suggest that people go to movies and think about what they saw and to be thoughtful moviegoers. I think that that was something that was special about writing for the alternative press it was something that distinguished New York press from mainstream media. Mainstream media always tied to advertising. Of course, publishers always care about advertising. They need advertising to exist, of course. But, but at New York Press, we as critics, as writers, we didn't have to worry about kowtowing to advertisers. We could be serious. We could offer a model of serious thinking about film to our readers. And I like to think that this is why uh, New York Press was popular among its audience, because we offered something that they were not getting from the mainstream press. Yes, and yeah. also there was no party line in the film section. There was not even a consensus. And like, from, you know, one of the things that I think was remarkable and maybe even unique about that section was from week to week, not only were Godfrey and Armin and I, you know, one of us would officially review the movie, and then the other two would come in and say that the first guy was full shit. And I think that's actually very healthy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Isn't that what they call discourse? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I'm unfamiliar with that word, Armin. It's been corrupted, it's been corrupted by me. <laughs> <laughs> by me. And, and also, but also, also, though, just, you know, like people like to say, uh, you know, we need to have a conversation. And in a sense, uh, <laughs> we always had a conversation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's one thing about the section when all three of us were in there was that, you know, you were not only getting individual takes on individual films, you were getting kind of a conversation because we were all aware of what the others were doing and thinking and saying. And sometimes we did come in and challenge, you know, the others. And I think that's something that audiences really liked during that period. I think that people were excited about the section. I mean, it, I think probably each of us had individual fans, but I think there were a lot of people there were fans of the section and the fact that there were oh, yeah. such different opinions represented, but opinions that a lot of people could respect all of them, even if they disagreed violently with some of them. And I think that that mix of voices was really unique in the American press at that time. I don't know of anything comparable to that. And it was something that I heard people comment on favorably all through that period. <laughs> There were some there were even times where like Armand or Godfrey would write something and one of my friends would go, Are you gonna are you gonna sit still for that? And I'm like, No, I'm working on a rebuttal. <laughs> 
Uh, there were things we did agree on, but it was interesting when we didn't agree. And sometimes uh, we would agree on a thing, but we would like it for different reasons, right? And then we'd have to come in and you know revise what the person before us had said. But that was all part of the excitement of that period to me. Indeed, I'm still surprised that somehow three people, passionate defenders of Spielberg, ended up in the same section in New York. That's right. That's right. It seems like Spielberg was the one person that we could agree on, and probably a lot of people would disagree with that, but it was where you know our frames of reference crossed and matched each other in a lot of ways. Yeah, the elective affinities as well as the disagreements make the book so interesting to read because you get more than just an opinion, more than just one review. You're not lost. You get comments on the director, you get comments on an actor of importance, you get comments on the cultural moment. There's this entire context that's, of course, tied up with long-form writing that gives you a sense of cinema is striving to say something about America and about human nature from perspectives that are as diverse as you can hope for. And nevertheless, they're engaged and therefore also engaging. And it did make you unique. And now in reading, it makes it sometimes educational, sometimes provocative. Usually it's fun and it's always so well done. It's important to stress this, that you always know you're listening to professionals. Yeah, and you know, one thing about the situation we had there, Titus, was that they basically would let us write to any length. This is where the long form comes in. And we could sit down and write a couple thousand words, whereas, you know, in almost any other publication, you'd have 600 words or 800 words. We could develop these long arguments and such that people seem to find very engaging and interesting. But also, they trusted us as writers. I mean, I don't recall being edited hardly at all by them because they said that my copy was good enough that it didn't need any tampering with. And I think probably true of Matt and Arm too. So we came into the paper with our own styles as well as our own perspectives. And they appreciated that and they let us go in that sense. So you have writers who are already fully formed at that point, just being allowed to do what they do without interference and without, you know, somebody saying you have to fit house style or whatever, which a lot of publications have. No, the, you know, the first major publication that I went to, I took a brief hiatus from the Star Ledger and the press for a while, and the first publication I landed at after that was the New York Times, where there is a style. I mean, they give people a certain amount of freedom. There are certain things that just aren't done, and I used to have these endless, stupidest arguments with copy desks. <laughs> That's quite something. Well, of course, it's not the case uh, with the New York Press. It's not the case with this book where you get vintage map. I wanted to pick up on something that you last said, you know, about uh, elective affinities. I think one of the wonderful surprises of these three distinct intellects and personalities meeting at New York Press is that we did converge on Spielberg. And I would like to talk a little bit about the positions that we took on Spielberg, especially in the 1990s, when he seemed to have been out of favor with what I'll call the critical consensus. This being the period of independent filmmaking, where Spielberg was often looked down upon as an example of Hollywood convention. But that's not what the three of us saw in him. Uh, we saw different things in him, and, and I think our collective appreciation of Spielberg indicated a way in which we were able to bring some enlightenment to the consensus opinion of film culture at the time that we could agree on Spielberg because we understood what Spielberg had in common with international filmmaking, as well as independent, shall I say, uh, countercultural filmmaking at the time. 
even though he's the farthest thing from a Sundance filmmaker, he was an example of traditional cinematic narrative at its best. So we understood, I think Godfrey and Matt would agree, that there was much to gain from paying attention to the strides that Spielberg was making in the 90s, even as other kinds of filmmakers were making strides too. Right. I would agree with that. Also, Armin, you know, um, sometimes I get typed, or I did at New York Press, as sort of the indie foreign film guy. But when people say that, I say, well, look at the number one on my 10 best list for several years. One year it was Amistad by Spielberg. One year it was The Age of Innocence by Scorsese. One year it was Nixon by Oliver Stone. One year it was The Thin Red Line by Terrence Malick. And there were a couple of other examples like that where I thought we were in a very rich period for that whole generation of filmmakers. Not that I liked every film by all of the directors I just mentioned, I was up and down pretty much on all of them. But we were in a period that to me was very exciting for having these directors who were mainly in their 50s at this time sort of hitting the peak of their work. And then we had all these new voices coming up and foreign voices coming in as well. So that to me was what made it really, really such a fascinating time to be writing about filmmaking. Yeah, I think Spielberg is the unifying note of the 90s. Of course, all three of you, like I, also love Malik, who had the wonderful end of the decade coming back into movies after 20 years. But Spielberg owned that decade. He was the most popular, but he was also discovering these things that he had not really done before. To call it serious movies would not quite satisfy He was thinking seriously about patriotism, about American history, about the American future as well. It was a kind of old form of filmmaking, as though the 70s hadn't happened, let's say. But at the same time, it was political filmmaking and at a fairly high level. And you three give him much more attention and attention of a higher quality than most criticism had or has since. And then that is one of the high points of the 90s. So it's very good that we got to note it. Exactly. Yes. (laughs) Sure. Well, gentlemen, I thank you very much for your time. It has been very good talking about this because, as I said, I read this book and uh, I know that I am among pros as a reader and that there's something to be treasured about your ability to talk to the audience, to talk to each other, to bring back cinema with each new movie and to think about what you should be telling your audience what is there to notice what is there to think about what is there to worry about and to delight in that's not so readily obvious yeah you know titus i know that there will be people that will get this book because they remember us and they would read us back in the day but i'm particularly interested in younger people picking up this book that don't you know that are too young to have been there to learn about this period and learn about the kind of criticism that was practiced during this decade, which has really kind of gone away since then, but I think still sets a kind of high bar for the kind of criticism you can do and the kind of criticism that maybe young people would want to think about now in terms of what they would like to do or read. I have that hope as well, Godfrey. I share the same hope. The pieces are vintage. The book, I think, should still be a challenge to anyone who cares. Uh, Yeah. I think of a quote from Bertolucci where he said, you can only disagree with people with whom you really agree with. That might speak for the three of us at New York Press. Yes, exactly. There has to be a shared ground, even for disagreement. People have to be disagreeing about the same big questions. And as you say, Armand, the pieces are vintage, but the insights are fresh. The writing is crisp. So please, people, just go on Amazon or wherever, and you can just buy this book, The Press Gang, 
you will get Godfrey Cheshire and you will get Armand White and you will get Matt Solar Zeitz as well. And a wonderful introduction into the NY Press too. So go buy this book and enjoy it. It's a very pleasant education. It's good observations and good writing. So it's all around a wonderful volume that will be with you for the rest of the year. Thanks a lot, gentlemen. All right, thank you. Thank you for the invitation, Titus. Yeah, enjoy. Thanks again. All the best.